beginning verse 15 and reading through the end of the chapter. John records for us here, as Jesus continues in his conversation with his disciples, in verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest himself to, myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him, and, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do. I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Our Father, this morning, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that... And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will illuminate our hearts and minds to to hear, to understand, and to heed the word. Father, we ask now that you would allow us to set aside the things that may be going on in our lives for, in these few moments that, that could distract us from uh, what you would like to speak to our hearts this morning. And Father, I pray that as I attempt to speak your word, that you would not allow my inabilities to be a distraction from what it is that you desire to do in the hearts of your people. So God, we pray that you would, in these moments, do a work in our hearts by the power of your word and through the power of the Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who were here two weeks ago, before we left for Haiti, I spoke from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, on the power that comes by means of the Holy Spirit to every person who truly believes and follows Christ. Now the power that the Holy Spirit brings, we saw, was for the very purpose to enable all believers, all those who claim the name of Christ, who are disciples of Christ, to boldly proclaim the message of the gospel for the glory of God and by that means bring many others to repent and believe this gospel. So today, as we are back in the book of John, as Jared returned there last week in chapter 14, 
uh, we find ourselves on a very similar issue. John 14 began, as Jared spoke last week, with the the declaration, let not your hearts be troubled. We're going to find that Jesus is going to come back to that very same thought. But it, it, And it is in this context of his followers not being troubled at heart or, or being able to live free from anxiety that Jesus now introduces yet another factor in the ongoing comfort and the ability that is granted to all believers in this age. And that factor or that person is the Holy Spirit. Now, ironically, and we did not plan it this way, but you may or may not be aware, those of you who follow uh, some of the broader scope of theology throughout our country, this past week there was a a very large conference that was held in California uh, at Grace Community Church. Some of you may be familiar with pastor and theologian John um, MacArthur. The conference that was held was concerning the issue of the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers today and ultimately in the life of the church. Now this conference became quite a controversial issue amongst many people. If you would have followed some of the blogs and even some of the things that took place in the midst of the conference, there was a lot of stuff that came out that, that seeks to invite uh, a controversy or at least some, some sense of uh, uh, curiosity from the masses. But one of the reasons this conference became so controversial was because John MacArthur and, and those who are like-minded with him... Uh, and, and let me caveat right here. John MacArthur is a very respectable and, and, and great theologian, expositor of the word. But on this issue, those who, who are in, so to speak, his camp, uh, believe very strongly uh, concerning the what they call the error of the charismatic movement. And so this conference was called Strange Fire and is based on the book that's getting ready to be released on November 14th by John MacArthur. And in this book, he challenges the movement of the charismatics uh, in, in America and around the world. And what he would say is that the error or the, the distraction from the very uh, core of the gospel that this movement brings. Now, there are, uh, I guess you could say, two extreme sides to this issue when it comes to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. There are those like MacArthur who believe that the miraculous works of the Spirit were solely given for the establishment of the church in the apostolic age. These people are called cessationists. They do not believe that the miraculous works of the Spirit, those uh, concerning things like uh, prophecy, not in the sense of preaching, but in the sense of foretelling, uh, those, those particular gifts of healing by a person, uh, the gifts of speaking in tongues, that these are the miraculous gifts of the Spirit that were given in the establishment of the gospel in the first century. But then after apostles passed away, that those gifts also ceased to exist in the life of believers and the church. That's why they're called cessationists. They believe that with the completion of the word of God, that was set aside. The other side of that uh, are those who are continuationists, I guess you could say. They are believe, people who believe that, no, unlike the cessationists, that the work of the Spirit... Uh, hasn't changed. That the very same things that took place in the first century that we read about throughout the Gospels and other places, uh, particularly uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, uh, that they're still happening today in, in the life of individual believers and in the life of the church. Now, uh, my point this morning is not to tell you which side you should be on. 
but I, I think it is fair that you know uh, the position that your pastor holds, uh, and, and and I'll discuss that a little bit as we go. But I'll state uh, up front that my position is what MacArthur would call that of open but cautious. Now MacArthur would say that those who are open and cautious are contributing contributing justifiable error to the charismatic movement. I, I disagree, and that's okay. I still don't think any less of John MacArthur. But what I mean by open but cautious is this. I believe, and I hold out to learn more, mind you, that the miraculous works of the Spirit still are possible in this very day. However, I believe that they are in operation where the gospel is yet to be established by large or by and large otherwise that where the gospel has been established and the church exists that we see much less and there is reason for us to be very cautious about the extreme focus on the charismatic gifts what I term that and it's not my phrase is a practical cessationist meaning that I do believe that God still uses miraculous works of the Spirit to bring people to a recognition of their need for the gospel. It doesn't replace the gospel. Uh, There are stories that you will hear in places where the church does not exist, where uh, uh, unbelievers uh, have dreams or visions that are a means by which they are led to the hearing of the gospel by which they repent and believe. The miraculous works of the Spirit do not replace the proclamation of the gospel, but work in connection with it. I do believe, however, that in America we have seen an egregious um, exploitation of the work of the Spirit, which would cause me some skepticism and some caution. But nevertheless, I don't claim to know all things, especially pertaining to this particular issue. There is great mystery in the work of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that the Scripture is not clear on its teaching concerning this third person of the Trinity, but there is some difficulty in some of the biblical passages. Or maybe, I should better say, there are some passages that are less clear in their teaching. And as is often the case on such a matter, that when there are unclear passages, there are varying interpretations and therefore some measure of disagreement. Now, before we look to this particular text, let me mention, <clears throat> excuse me, let me mention two extreme positions. And, and mind you, these are the extremes. These are not the two positions, but the extent uh, of a whole list of positions. On, on one extreme, there are those who would emphasize so strongly a focus on the objective word of God that they exclude any inclusion of heartfelt emotion, experience. Now, I would uphold very strongly, uh, and I'm not saying that it's a bad thing for us to be focused on the word. By by and far, we should be centered on the word. But this, this extreme position would be such to the exclusion of Experience, Meaning that anytime there's emotion, uh, these that are in this group would often be extremely skeptical uh, about anything that's going on in the midst of that emotion. The other extreme to that, on the other end of the spectrum, are those who, who put a great deal or too much focus upon the emotional. There are those, these are those who seek to focus 
much more on the experience that one has and often go beyond revealed truth in the pages of Scripture. And they do so justifying their position and beliefs on the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, these groups, this extreme, often teach very little by way of scriptural doctrine and truth and tend to work up or work on the emotions of the audience so that they will have a good experience. Now, we have, we have to be careful when we talk about extremes. We can't say, we can't apply a group, for instance, charismatics, and then throw everybody in the same defining area. And so I don't want you to misunderstand me when I give you these extremes. I'm not doing that. Uh, among, however, this particular extreme are many charismatics groups, such as those who teach a health and wealth gospel, that the, the gospel is all about you being blessed and being healthy and wealthy. And, and those who are included in what is called the word of faith movement, which simply says, if you just have enough faith and you speak it, then it will happen. There are, however, other charismatic groups that I would not classify as in this extreme, uh, but much more doctrinally sound. So don't, please don't misunderstand that I'm not grouping everybody in one group. Now, I must admit that while I consider myself to be fairly knowledgeable of concerning the Word of God, and, and even on this particular doctrine of the Holy Spirit, there is much that I must say I remain uncertain about and can only hope to grow in my own knowledge and understanding concerning this very difficult doctrine in the Word of God. But in order for any of us to rightly learn any truth from the Word of God, we must begin with what is clear and move from there to what is less clear in the Scriptures. Only after coming to some measure of understanding concerning the clear Scriptures. In John 14... Jesus begins to introduce to his disciples the role and work of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus teaches in this chapter, and we'll see some in the later chapters, uh, is by no means unclear. What we read here concerning the Holy Spirit in John 14 is not at all unclear. This would be one of those clear passages. However, it is incomplete. It's not exhaustive. If John 14 were the only teaching that you and I had from the scriptures on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we would be left with many unanswered questions. So Jesus' initial teaching doesn't seek to answer all the questions that might arise concerning this, this wonderful doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And it's for that reason that Jesus doesn't seek to answer all those questions, that, that we need to set aside some of those curiosities, some of those questions that we may have, so that those curiosities don't cloud the teaching, the clear teaching that is found in this otherwise clear text in John 14. Now concerning those two extremes that I mentioned before, I have to categorically say that both of those extremes are wrong. To be so focused on the word that you would deny experience is, is not scriptural. To be so focused on experience that you would go beyond the word is not scriptural either. But we're not seeking to set the word over and against the spirit or the spirit over and against the word. But rather, we must recognize that Jesus and the entirety of the New Testament portray the truth of God's word revealed by means of the spirit and the spirit working in conjunction with the Word of God. We are not to seek one 
in opposition to the other, but rather a both-and position. The Spirit and the Word working together. The Word of God as the full and final authority must be upheld because it is taught throughout Scripture. The significance of the ongoing work of the Spirit must be upheld because it is taught throughout the entirety of Scripture. So in John 14, John reveals the way in which the Word and the Spirit operate together to accomplish God's purposes in the lives of Christ's followers, those of us who declare ourselves to be disciples of Christ, having been saved by the marvelous grace of God. And therefore, as we come together, uh, he teaches us how the Word and the Spirit work together in the life of the church. Now, while Jesus does not provide an exhaustive teaching on this particular doctrine, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in this chapter, he does introduce us to the primary ongoing work of the Spirit. Now, I say, I use that term, primary ongoing work of the Spirit, because I believe that very likely the most significant work of the Spirit is that of regeneration. Now, this was the focus of Jesus' teaching back in John chapter 3. The work of the Holy Spirit in the life of an unbeliever to bring them to the place of a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it is the regenerating work of the Spirit in the lives of those who do not believe that brings life where there is no life and enables repentance and faith unto salvation. In fact, our Baptist faith and message, which is the doctrinal statement that guides all who cooperate together in our particular denomination, reads this way. Regeneration, or the new birth, is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is the change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, the subject that Jesus is focused on here or teaching in, in this particular passage rests not on that initial work of the Spirit in regeneration, but on what the Spirit will continue to do in the lives of all of Christ's followers. So while there is much for us to consider in this, this passage, verses 15 to, to 31, I want us to look briefly at three particular truths that, that we could folk, or we can spend our time on, among other things. These three truths are this. Number one, the weight of Jesus' word. Number two, the help of the Spirit. And number three, the responsibility of the Spirit. So beginning with the first, the weight of Jesus' word. At the very start of this passage, Jesus, in verse 15, Jesus makes a very simple but extremely difficult statement. Now, I know that's an oxymoron. It's simple, but it's difficult. Simple because it isn't difficult for us to understand what he says, but difficult because it isn't easy for us to live up to what he says. He says very clearly, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We don't have to go to a dictionary. We don't have to go through a great detail of, of exegesis for us to understand that simple statement, correct? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Simply put, if you say you love Jesus... It will be evident in your life by your obedience to his word. Now, this isn't some merely some general proverb like you might read in the book of Proverbs. It's a general truth, but not necessarily always the case. No, this is a reality for everyone who claims to follow 
our Lord Jesus Christ. If you love Jesus, you will keep his commandments. Now left by itself, that statement alone, it may feel like it somewhat legalistic. You know, you got to keep the commandments. You got to do certain things. I mean, doesn't that sound a little more like the Old Testament when people were, were supposed to obey the law of God? When we say that, doesn't it sound like what you read in the Old Testament? I mean, after all, isn't salvation today, post-resurrection, by the grace of God alone, apart from any works of man? And the answer to that, that question is a resounding yes. Salvation is by grace alone, plus nothing. There is not, not one thing that you or I can do on behalf of ourselves or on behalf of others to cause them to be saved. But when Jesus is speaking in this chapter, he's not dealing with the means of salvation. He's not dealing with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. He is declaring the evidence of that salvation which is gained by a sinner freely by God's grace and his grace alone. So in this short passage, we read uh, not only in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But again, in verse 21, Jesus goes on to reiterate this very truth. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And then again, in verse 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. So it seems very obviously that in these short, this short passage, the, the reiteration of this simple to understand truth is somewhat important, at least in Jesus' mind, for him to convey to his followers and for his followers to begin to grasp. Loving Christ is more than mere emotion. It's more than merely saying, I love Jesus. Love for Christ is more than a, a sentimental feeling. It makes us feel good in mere experience because we come to a worship service where the music is nice and it, and it gives us chill bumps or, or we have this, this nice experience among the people because they were nice to us. It's more than that. Love for Christ is obedience to His Word. Now, I understand among all of us that we are sinners. I get that. You hear me say that all the time. And, and we're good at that. Are we not? Well, maybe I can only speak for myself. I am very good at sinning. It takes no effort on my part. But there's still no way to get around the reality that Christ both desires and declares obedience from those who claim His name. The Word of God is much more than merely a simple guide to life, as some people have stated it to be. And we must take God's word very seriously. To do otherwise reveals that whatever we may call ourselves, we're not disciples of Christ. If we don't take this word, his word, seriously. Now, I have often heard people say things like, we know all that really matters is that you love Jesus, right? Maybe you've said it at some point in your life. All that really matters that you, is that you love Jesus. What's interesting is, the most, most of the times I've heard those words uttered, they were by those who were living a life contrary to what the Bible teaches. It's people who, who refuse to gather with the body of believers in the church, who say, you know, all that really matters is that you love Jesus. Or, or you, it's a, 
those people who are living consistently a lifestyle that is questionable concerning the word of God, they're the ones that often say, but all that really matters is that you love Jesus. And essentially, I'd have to say that statement is absolutely true. All that really matters is that you love Jesus. But to love Jesus means to obey his word. You cannot take the one from the other. You can't say, I I love Jesus, just not his word. I'm not going to live in accordance to his word. It means that you will heed the Bible's exhortation to not forsake the gathering of yourselves together with the gathered believers called the church. It means that you will seek repentance from sin rather than justification for your sin. The word of God and and obedience to it stands at the very center of our claim to be disciples of Christ no matter how you or I feel about it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But again, speaking about mere obedience sounds much more like legalism or, or like the Pharisees in the Gospels. I mean, after all, didn't the Pharisees do a pretty good job keeping the commandments and then some, right? I mean, they were pretty particular about those things, but they weren't disciples of Christ. They did not love Jesus. Now, while Jesus meant what he said, he did not say, if you keep my commandments, you will love me. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So it is possible to be a command keeper Without any love for Christ. That was a Pharisee. But it is not possible to be a lover of Christ and not be a commandment keeper, a follower of his word. But Jesus didn't stop with this statement alone. This is but a few verses in this entire passage. He proceeds to reveal the means by which disciples of Christ would be able to live and evidence their love for him by keeping his commandments. So not only do we see the weight of Jesus' word, we see the help of the Spirit. Anytime obedience becomes the subject, we are quickly reminded of our utter sinfulness. We, we must keep coming back to that, but, but we're sinners. We fear a statement like, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, because we know that we're going to fail miserably. Every single one of us will fail miserably at our attempts to perfectly keep Christ's word. Sometimes we won't even want to keep Christ's word. It won't even be our desire. We'll want to go against Christ's words. And we struggle here. So we don't like to hear, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So where is the comfort in these words? I mean, remember, after all, this this teaching comes in the context sandwiched by Jesus saying twice, let not your hearts be troubled. Let them be comforted. And it is in that context that he he says these very things. So where is the comfort? It is at this juncture that Christ goes on to say, I will ask the Father and he will send you another helper to be with you to the end of the age. And he goes on to say that this helper will be with you. And not only that, he will be in you. So if you think that living up to to Jesus' first statement is impossible, in one sense you're right. For the world to do so, it is an impossibility. By our own will and by our own power, we will never keep Christ's commands. That is why God has provided a helper, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus introduces this, the Holy Spirit as what 
translates here as the helper, the, the parakletos, which simply means the one called alongside of, the one to, to come alongside of you and I to aid us in our walk as Christ's disciples, to walk consistently in the manner in which Christ has called us to. It is the Spirit of God within believers that will give us both the desire and the power to live for Him. So let's go back to the beginning for just a moment and follow with me. Before the first sin, Adam and Eve lived in a sinless existence, a perfect paradise. They did not have a sin nature. There was nothing within them that urged them from the the depths of their heart to to pursue sin. They had God and his word. And in the midst of that word, they had but one forbidding command, and that was to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, when temptation came to them, it was external. It was a temptation from without. There was not a yearning within their hearts to rebel against God. It was merely an external temptation. They did not have a sinful heart to urge them from within to disobey God. Only a deceptive, the deceptive voice of the serpent from without. Yet they still chose to obey. Now when they, when they did this, they and all humanity experienced what is called the fall. They fell from a sinless, perfect existence to one of absolute and utter sinfulness. And every human being born from that time until this very day, except for Jesus himself is born with a sinful nature, that is a corrupt heart, a will that is bent against God's will. It is our very nature to to rebel against Him. We desire to obey even when external temptation is not present. It doesn't even have to be there. There's, There's a desire from within to go against God's way and do it our way. So after some time, we read in Scripture that that God gave sinful humanity His Word. This Word was written on external tablets of stone. Much like the initial temptation that came to Adam and Eve that they faced there, these commandments were merely external. They were on the outside. There was nothing from within sinful humanity that would urge them and, and cause them to long for God and His glory. Their hearts were still bent against God's will. They were still rebels against God. And as a result, they continually disobeyed again and again and again. In fact, I love the passage that you're probably familiar with at at the end of Joshua. When Joshua, Joshua stands before the people and he says, choose this day whom you will serve. You, You know that it's on a lot of placards. Choose you this day whom you will serve. And, And the people stood and they said, oh, we'll serve the Lord. And this sounds good, but then Joshua's response, you can go and read it. Joshua goes, you can't. You're not able to. And what he was focused on is the fact that their very sinfulness would would drive them to continue to rebel against God. Man's attempt to faithfully and fully obey God was futile because the continuing effects of sin upon the human heart. Now, I know, where's the optimism in the story, right? This is sounding pretty bleak. Story after story in the Bible reveals this very reality. Even the best of the best seem to always fail miserably, eventually. Even the man after God's own heart. Many years and many rebellions later, God spoke words of hope through the prophet Jeremiah when he said this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. 
and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And then just a little bit later through the prophet of Ezekiel. God said this, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and, on, and, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In the very same way that indwelling sin guarantees that sinners will in fact sin, the indwelling spirit, the writing of God's law upon the heart of the believer in conjunction with the work of the spirit, guarantees that regenerate or saved sinners will obey. Did you hear that last statement in Ezekiel? And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promises by his own work that he would bring this about in the life of those who, whom he puts the spirit in. And that is all who profess the name of Jesus Christ. Now, our obedience may, may not yet be perfected. But as true believers, true followers of Christ, it will be progressing. And with the help of the spirit, you and I can, hear me, you can live increasingly in accordance to Christ's commands and so evidence the reality of your and my salvation to a lost and dying world. But we must understand that this help that comes from the Spirit is never disconnected from the Word of God, that Word that God writes upon the heart in the promise of the new covenant. It is for the purpose of aiding us The Spirit's purpose is for aiding us in accordance with the Word of God. And our third truth is the responsibility of the Spirit. Jesus goes on to introduce one of the primary functions of the Spirit. This is what he says in verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The way in which the Spirit enables us to obey Christ's commands is through teaching and reminding. This is a primary work of the Spirit. Not all, but a primary, basic work of the Spirit. I mean, go back through John's Gospel and and see the introduction of the teaching of the Spirit. John 3, regeneration. John 14, teaching and reminding. John 16, convicting. We're going to see these things introduced as we go. But the Spirit's work primarily is that of teaching and reminding in an ongoing sense in the lives and hearts of those who follow Christ. It is the Spirit who enables believers to understand the things of God. Things that are revealed in God's Word, and that is, and hear me there, things that are revealed in God's Word. The teaching of the Spirit is not new. 
You hear that? It's not new. It's not beyond the word of God. In fact, this concept of teaching is in keeping with our own understanding and experience of teachers in our lives. Uh, Teachers don't make up new things as they go along to teach us. They teach us what is already established truth. It's only that it seems new to us. When my wife teaches our kids at home that 2 plus 2 equals 4, she's not making up new truth. She's passing on ancient truth that is merely new to our children as it's introduced to them. And in the same way, the Spirit of God teaches us truths that have existed for ages past but are merely new to us. We're just now learning them for the first time. And so when Jesus says the Spirit will come and He will teach you, it's not that He's going to teach you something new that's never been taught before, but something that Jesus Himself has taught, the Word of God teaches But maybe you have yet to understand. But then also he's to remind. He's to bring to remembrance all that Jesus said. This is why Jesus goes on to say this very thing. That he's going to bring to remembrance what I've told you. And now if you go back and read the Gospels. You'll find on several occasions that Jesus says something to the disciples. And the Gospel writer will will indicate that they didn't understand until after Jesus rose from the dead. Well, what happened after Jesus rose from the dead? He ascended to the Father. What happened when he ascended to the Father? The Holy Spirit came. And it was then that the disciples began to understand some of the things that Jesus had told them. Because the Spirit served to remind them of the truths that they had been told. And now they begin to go, oh, I I get it now. It is the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit that enabled the early disciples and us today to understand what Jesus has already said. And just as the Spirit operated in those days, He operates now. It hasn't changed. He enables our finite minds to comprehend the truth of the gospel. He awakens us to truth. And it's not it's more than fact. It is fact. It is historical. But nevertheless, it's more than that. It requires the work of the Spirit upon our hardened hearts and our hardened minds to, to give us understanding and, and teach us truths that are new to us. These are the things that the world, that is, those without the Spirit, cannot and will not receive. That's what he says in the very beginning of this passage. In, 15, in 16, he says, um, I will ask the, the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees them nor knows him. These are truths that the world, those without the Spirit, will not comprehend. We can tell them all day long, but until something miraculous happens in their hearts, they won't get it. This is also what Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when he wrote, Yet among the mature we do, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so even Paul teaches us very clearly there that, that the giving of the Spirit, it will make no sense to the world, but it is a very basis by which we as believers, followers of Christ, gain understanding of the very truths that Christ has re- proclaimed, the, the very Word of God that has been objectively written down for us and also written upon our very hearts. It is on this basis, the basis of the promise of this Helper, the Holy Spirit, that Jesus says that you and I will live in this age with peace. Jesus initially said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto themselves. There's a future hope that you and I have, but we live here and now. But in this passage, he he goes on to say that while he's preparing a room or an abode for us for the future, he comes back and says that he and the Father will come and make an abode with us in this age. And that will take place through the presence and the power in the work of the Holy Spirit. It is based on the work of the Spirit that we will be able to experience what Jesus said in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. And then again, he repeats in verse 27. Let not your hearts be troubled. In the midst of a world gone mad because the ruler of this age is at work. In the midst of the chaos caused by sin's effects in this world. In the midst of a people who will not and cannot fathom the things of God. You and I can have peace and hearts free from anxiety because Jesus has ascended to the Father and he has asked the Father and the Father has sent the Spirit to help us until we too ascend to God's glorious throne where you and I will one day be free from sin and all its effects upon this world. Pray with me. Our Father, we love you and we thank you for the marvelous truths of your word. Sometimes when we read your word, it's, it's so difficult for us to comprehend, especially when it comes to issues of the spirit. There's so much controversy and confusion about that particular person of the Trinity. But, Lord, as we read a passage like John 14, it, it's absolutely clear. And there's so much more in there we could discuss. But on the spirit, you have made it very clear that the spirit is the means by which you, you grant us peace and hope, freedom from anxiety. It is the Spirit by which you enable us to believe and continue believing. It is by the work of the Spirit in our lives, your promise to us that we are able to to grow and comprehend the the infinite truths of the gospel. And so, God, I pray for the believers that are here today uh, that your Spirit would work mightily in them. There are believers here from every spectrum of the growth chart, from, from being very babes in Christ to those who have matured and We all have different needs and where we need to grow. But Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit, you would minister to our hearts where we are. Increase our knowledge of the truth that our love too might increase. And as our love increases, we understand from your word that that means that we will be enabled and empowered by the spirit of God to faithfully keep your commands. I pray, Lord, that we would not relegate your word to something of the past. And, and be those who would simply say, uh, because it's by grace, we don't have to worry. But rather, because it is by grace and because we love you, Lord, compel us to live faithfully for your glory. 
But then, Lord, I pray for those who might be here today who have never repented of their sin and, and believe the gospel. I pray that today would be the day that by the work of your spirit, uh, you would awaken their hearts to the truth. And, Lord, that you would, uh, by your regenerating power, bring them to faith and repentance uh, in the gospel. And, and so save them, I pray. Father, do what only you can do. I pray that in spite of all that we've done, in spite of the difficulties we've had in this service, despite of the, in spite of the, uh, the things that haven't gone the way we planned, in spite of me and my inabilities, I pray that your, your spirit would work mightily in the hearts of both those who are here who do not believe and those who are here who are truly disciples of yours. Father, have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.